I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing relations between China and Sweden. Sweden was the first Western country to establish diplomatic ties with the People's Republic of China, and that occurred in 1950. And since then, China has become one of Sweden's largest trading partners, and the two countries have deepened their connections through Confucius Institutes and sister city relationships. In recent years, however, a series of diplomatic disputes have led to a downward spiral in Chinese-Swedish relations. In 2015. Chinese-born Swedish writer and publisher Guo Minhai was seized by Chinese officers while on vacation in Thailand, and he was sentenced to ten years imprisonment earlier this year, allegedly for providing intelligence overseas. Now, China's ambassador to Sweden threatened economic sanctions over a Swedish organization's decision to award Guo Minhai a prestigious Freedom of Speech Prize. In 2019, the ambassador said, "We treat our friends with fine wine, but for our enemies, we use shotguns." Apparently, all eight major Swedish political parties condemned the ambassador's remarks, and Sweden then shuttered all of the Confucius Institutes and canceled several of the sister city agreements, leaving the bilateral relationship on perhaps what is a rather uncertain ground, and that stands today. To discuss the key challenges. In the relationship and the future direction of China-Sweden relations, I'm joined by the Honorable Carl Bildt. Mr. Bildt was Sweden's Foreign Minister from 2006 to 2014, and Prime Minister from 1991 to 1994 when he negotiated Sweden's EU accession. He also served as EU Special Envoy to the former Yugoslavia,、uh, High Representative for Bosnia and Herzegovina, UN Special Envoy to the Balkans, and Co-Chairman of the Dayton Peace Conference. Today, he is also Co-Chair of the European Council on Foreign Relations, and, if I may say so, one of Europe's most respected statesmen. So, thank you so much for joining us today, Carl. Well, a pleasure. Let's get started. Since you left government in 2014, much has happened in the relationship between China and Sweden. How would you assess the current state of the bilateral relationship, and compared to where it stood six years ago? It's correct, as you said, that we had diplomatic relations with the PRC right from the beginning. I wouldn't say that they were in those intense during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, but there was something. There was, a, I would say, a surprising number of fairly high-level Chinese delegations coming every year to Sweden, look at industry and defence and and whatever. So it wasn't a bad relationship. Then, of course, we've had sort of significant economic links that applies to all European countries. But what we've seen during the last few years, of course, is a deterioration that has to do with the consular case that you mentioned, and that has to do with the rather high profile, to put it very mildly. Attitude taken by the Chinese ambassador, which has not served his country particularly well, in my opinion, because that has created more bad feelings than good feelings. And then, of course, this is also part of the general development that we've seen with questions about Chinese behavior in the one in the one area after the other. So, at the present time, I think we are in a situation where the situation is certainly not good. Not catastrophic, but the trajectory is not particularly good. That that, that that's for certain. 
So to what extent do you think the problems are specific to the bilateral relationship and to what extent would you contribute it to the broader changes in Chinese foreign policy? I think it's primarily due to the general trends in Chinese foreign policy. I mean, the consular case is, of course, specific, but that consular case could have happened in any country. It happened to be Sweden. And I think that any government would have reacted on it in the same way that the Swedish government has done. A combination of sort of publicly making the position clear, but also trying to maneuver the issue to no effect whatsoever. And then, of course, what we've seen during the last few years, X numbers of ambassadors around Europe, and I'm quite certainly around the world, have sort of heard the message from Beijing that they should be more vocal, more aggressive, more assertive. I don't think they've been able to fine-tuning that particularly well, to put it mildly, and it had turned overly aggressive in a number of cases, and that has backfired. And add to that the general issue that we've had with the one issue after the other concerning China. I think we might be the canary in the coal mine, but I don't think we are, to use that particular phrase, but I don't think the deterioration that we've seen is not primarily linked to Sweden, it's linked to what we see in X numbers of European countries. So we've seen China use economic levers to punish many countries around the world. Really, Norway was the first when it awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Of course, the committee awarded the Nobel Peace Prize to Liu Xiaobo. Since then, we've seen so many countries that have had to bear the brunt of China's economic coercive measures. Has China done anything in this regard against Sweden as it interfered with imports from Sweden, or has it primarily taken punitive measures in the political realm? So far, it's been primarily in the political area. I mean, there was, uh, we haven't had any delegations or visits of that sort of a, of a high profile or of a political nature, to be precise, for quite some time. As you pointed out, the ambassador threatened that there could be economic repercussions. When I talked around with Swedish business, they haven't really seen that. They have their usual complaints about what's happening on the Chinese market, but nothing that you can sort of say that that is politically motivated. So, so far, it has not affected the economic relationship. It is primarily the political area, so far. What do you think is the reason for that? I mean, why would we see China today punishing Australia, for example? And of course, in the past, South Korea, when it deployed the THAAD missile defense system, there's so many countries that have been the target of this pressure. Why wouldn't China use that pressure against Sweden? I wouldn't exclude that they would do it at some point in time if there's a further deterioration over the one issue or the other. But I don't think we are sort of that exposed. I mean, the the Australians are extremely dependent upon their trade with China, and it was beef export in this particular case. I mean, it's extremely important for the sort of beef sector in the Australian economy. Korea, obviously, very dependent. Our dependence, well, you can probably find something, but but overall... I think it would be difficult for them to find anything that was that significant that they could strike at, that had that sort of effect, that it would have any possibility of altering the political course of Sweden. So it might be that they make a sort of a rational analysis of the situation and come to that conclusion, but we simply don't know. What has been Sweden's strategy then to counter this pressure and interference from China? And how do you evaluate how it's been effective? Has Sweden been dealing with this pretty much on its own in coordination with European partners? Has the United States in any way supported Sweden? 
On the consular case, there has been solid support from other European Union countries. So I don't know about the United States, but I wouldn't exclude that. On the other issues, it's been quite high level, a lot of decibels, when the ambassador have attacked different Swedish journalists and things like that. And then he has been called into the ministry and told in no uncertain terms that we do have freedom of the media in this country and that he has to respect as well. I don't think they've said to him, but I mean, the implicit message is that he want, if he wants to make a fool out of himself in public in Sweden, that comes under the freedom that is there, but it's not very advisable if he wants to see his task as building better relationships. So he, he's been called in a number of times to the minister over that. If that has affected his behavior, I don't know. I think he will go on doing what he does as long as he, he thinks that that is what they want him to do in Beijing. So Sweden published a strategy paper on China, one of the very few European countries to do so, and that was published late last year. I wonder how you evaluate that paper. Do you think that it, it was a good idea to publish it? How is it re- received in Sweden? Is it the right approach to handling the Swedish relationship with China? I think it was certainly an unusual thing to do. We have had, of course, internally in the, in the government before, we've got strategy papers concerning different issues, but this is the first time any Swedish government has published a paper of that sort. It was, of course, motivated by the fact that China is becoming an issue, partly because of the things that we have mentioned and partly because of the fact that China is a more assertive, a growing power. And there was a need to look at the relationship as sort of more comprehensively. It was a fairly good paper, in my opinion. And it was presented to Parliament, and Parliament had to express its opinion upon it, which is highly unusual. And that turned out to be a good thing, because it demonstrated that there is a broad consensus in Sweden on that policy. I don't think you would find the paper necessarily that sensational, but I think it was good anyhow. And I would hope that it was read very carefully in Beijing as well, because the message of the paper was of course, to Swedish public opinion to explain the policies of the government, but also to Beijing to have them understand what the policy really is. And the paper describes the European Union as a cornerstone of Sweden's policy toward China. Is this the best path for managing relations with China to put the EU forward as the best mechanism to deal with with the relationship with China? That is, of course, something that is basic to all of our issues. I mean, whichever issue you would talk about, the European Union is our number one instrument in foreign affairs. I mean, you can add the United Nations and X number of other international bodies, but the EU, we are committed to common foreign security policy of the European Union. And as, as a medium-sized, whatever you call this country, we have a profound interest in developing a more coherent and strong and unified EU policy. That has not been entirely easy, but Sweden has clearly been one of those countries trying to drive that particular process. You said that there was a consensus among the political parties, and I assume you were talking in reference to that paper. But I wonder if you could address whether there's a broader consensus on relations with China and attitudes towards China. Are there different constituencies business interests, perhaps education interests. I mean, we in the United States have obviously various constituencies with very different views, even though the overall trend toward China is is one of hardening attitudes. Do you see this in Sweden as well? 
I think it's very clearly that you see a gradual hardening of attitude, and not really to be compared with what you see happening in the United States, but there is a hardening of attitude. And you see that not only in Sweden, but you see that across Europe. You saw it clearly in the commission paper that came out next year. I think you see it in further papers coming out. Are there different constituencies? Well, we used to have quite a good cohort of academic people who were specialized more in classical China. But that particular relationship deteriorated after Tiananmen and didn't really recover on that particular level. Business, absolutely. We have significant investments in China although less than in Poland, has to be said, which means that sort of virtually every Swedish major business has some sort of interest in China. For some of them, China is a significant market, but not necessarily for that many. So are they exercising some sort of pressure or influence? I think they are arguing for a critical but constructive approach to China because they have their own concerns. But overall, I would say there is not a huge level of disagreement on the China policies in this country at the moment. And what has been the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on Sweden's relationship with China and attitudes toward China? Do you think that this has made the situation more tense, more contentious? Well, to use that famous phrase too early to tell, because we are only in the beginning of it, although the Chinese are saying we have already ended it. I think among elite people, people that do foreign policy, they have become perhaps some of them somewhat more suspicious. I think when the Chinese started to do this sort of diplomacy with sending masks and things to different European countries, I think they overdid it slightly. And I think that backfired somewhat. Has it affected the overall relationship? Apart from that, not yet, I would say. The U.S.-China relationship, of course, has been deteriorating. I would say the pandemic has been an accelerant. It is very much on a downward slide. Uh, I don't think it's hit bottom yet. And we don't know whether we will have a, another four years of President Trump or a Democratic president. But either way, I expect that U.S.-China relations will continue to experience an enormous amount of friction. What impact? does that have on Sweden? Obviously, there's been different reactions across Europe. Has this introduced great uncertainty? Is this something that is harmful to Sweden's interests? It could well be. If we have significant deterioration of relationship between China and the United States, that is clearly detrimental to global stability. The world trading system, security issues, and that affects Europe and that affects Sweden as well. I mean, we've seen very clearly in the trade area, although we had the phase one agreement, but we don't know about the continuation. It does affect, I think people like myself are somewhat worried by the brutalization of the language that we see from both sides, as a matter of fact. I mean, you see it very clearly these days from Secretary Pompeo primarily, but also from the president. And you also see it from not that high level in China, but at least different spokespersons of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. That is not the way even an adversarial relationship should be handled. To which extent this can be explained by the both domestic concerns in China, I guess, and certainly by the domestic situation in the United States remains to be seen. But I think it's a source of concern in Europe. And where does Sweden stand on the issue of using products produced by Huawei and ZTE in its networks? 
Well, we are, we are, of course, part of that particular game since the, the number one competitor worldwide is Ericsson. So, so we have sort of a slightly genetic disposition in favor of Ericsson. But that's not an entirely easy relationship either because, I mean, Ericsson is a very significant Swedish company. It sort of it operates worldwide. It's been all over the world for forever. It is basically very successful. The Chinese market is very important for Ericsson. They have significant R&D facilities in, in China. And it was important or interesting to note that when the Chinese were now sort of buying equipment for their 5G system, Ericsson was the only foreign supplier that they accepted into the Chinese market. From the commercial point of view, so to say, we are very much part of that particular big 5G battle that is now being played out. And it has to be said, the security concerns are there. We saw very, very early... um, Huawei setting up offices in Stockholm that were located very close to Ericsson. And I don't think, to put it in those terms, that sales was their number one preoccupation with those offices. How is Sweden looking at China's ambitions and policies in the Arctic? I know this is something that the U.S. has been paying more attention to. Is this an area of great security concern? No, I have listened to what different U.S. representatives have said, and I found that slightly overblown. It is true that the Chinese, they've had one converted commercial ship that is an Arctic and Antarctica research ship. They've had a couple of research stations. They are building a new, or have recently built a new one, by the way, Icebreaker, that I think primarily has gone down to the Antarctic, not to the Arctic. But there are lots of countries up there. There are the Japanese, there are the Koreans, there are necessarily the Canadians, there are the Americans. I mean, Arctic research is an international endeavor, as is Antarctic research. It's something that concerns us. And I haven't seen anything that hints at sort of a militarization or anything of that sort that is implied from the U.S. side. Add to this, of course, that they have commercial interests, and that is related to the natural gas coming out of Siberia the huge developments that the Russians are doing in the Yamal Peninsula. But up there you have also the French and the Koreans that are heavily involved with those particular projects, apart from the Chinese. I take from your answer to that question that you think there should be some balance in relations with China. In other words, that there are areas of converging interests where Sweden should be working with China, and perhaps maybe you think the United States should do the same. Yes, I think we need to have a China policy that is on sort of two pillars. I mean, clearly there's one pillar where there are significant divergences, and I would say increasing divergences of values, human rights, some security issues. I mean, we all know Hong Kong, Taiwan, whatever, increasing divergence. But then we have another pillar where we would seek more convergence, climate issues, perhaps number one, uh, trade issues most certainly, both sort of access to the Chinese markets and things like that, and the world trading system, and quite a number of other issues. Global health is clearly an issue that is very much prominent these days, uh, where we just just can't exclude the Chinese because they are a significant power and a lot of things have been coming out of China, to put it very mildly, during a long period of time. So there are significant issues where we need to engage with China and try to get a constructive relationship with them. At the same time as we have this other pillar where we see more of a divergence of values and, and interest. And to handle both of them is the task of a balanced foreign policy. 
So how would you evaluate then the Trump administration's policy toward China? Do you think their assessment of the challenges that China poses is correct? And do you think that there are aspects maybe of the response that are warranted? Do you think there is an overall strategy that the Trump administration has towards China? Well, that's the sort of question that you are supposed to be able to answer, not me. But if I listen to the U.S., let's call it the security establishment, if we assume there is such a thing, there's no question that they are concerned with the long-term strategic trends in terms of military power, the balance of power in the Pacific and in the Ocean, and that is causing the famous shift to great power competition, and you see the shift in military resources that is happening. That clearly reasons for that that are valid and what we've seen the Chinese doing in the South China Sea and a very significant shipbuilding program testifies to these particular issues. So that's, and that's, I think, irrespectively of your presidential contest, that's going to remain from the US side, according to what I think that I see. What you have now is, of course, also the electoral aspect of it. I mean, you have Secretary Pompeo really goes really ballistic time after time. And the problem with that, I think, is that he tends to lose credibility, at least with Europeans. I mean, he said there was enormous amount of evidence that COVID was coming out of the Wuhan laboratory. That does not seem to have gone very well with people who have close intelligence relationship with the United States. And there is a lingering suspicion around Europe that sort of, do we see repetition of 2003 scenario prior to the Iraq war? So that sort of uh, very belligerent rhetoric, I think, has uh, the disadvantage of distracting from the real problems that are there and could lose, it might gain some domestic points, I don't know about that. But I think it might sort of lose some foreign policy credibility for the United States in an area where one should really seek to have credibility in the policy in order to build broader global alliances. So if we look forward at uh, China's relations with Sweden again, what are what are the indicators? What should we watch for? If the Huaiminhai issue were somehow resolved in a favorable way, if you were expelled from the country, would this resolve much of the tension in the relationship? Would it enable the two countries to to repair things and go forward? Or are there really other issues that are going to make it very difficult for Sweden to have a positive relationship with China going forward? No, there's no question that that would sort of improve the situation significantly. And I think it would hopefully lead to sort of that would be a restoration of more sort of normal links in terms of the one or the old delegation and visits and things like that. But apart from that, I would say that the relationship is going to be the same as with other European countries. Trade issues, they're on the table. There are human rights issues, they're on the table. They're sort of, we'll see what happens with Hong Kong. Those issues play into the relationship between China and every single uh, European country. And then let's see how successful the European Union will be with the unified European China policy. We have still the plans there. I doubt it's going to happen, but anyhow, for the big summit between the European Union and China in Leipzig in September. So there's now a process underway between the different countries to sort of align the policies. Let's see how successful that is. There are, of course, some countries inside the European Union who are 
sort of <laughs> very tentative, to put it in those terms, to signals coming out of Beijing on sensitive issues like the South China Sea and human rights. But Sweden would clearly, irrespective of what happened on the council issue, be clear on putting those issues, those sorts of issues on the table all the time. Well, we've been talking with uh, former Prime Minister and former Foreign Minister uh, Carl Bildt, uh, and he's currently co-chairman of the European Council on Foreign Relations. We appreciate you giving us your perspectives today on China's relations with Sweden, and uh, all the best. Thank you. Thank you.